As we go now to open God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. So help us now to meditate on your precepts and to fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in the, God's word to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 8. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 233 on most of the Pew Bibles. And the um, book of Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible between Deuteronomy and Judges. And if you're visiting with us, we've been conducting a series through the book of Joshua in the evening, and we've come to chapter 8. And so we want to read the first 29 verses of chapter 8. So chapter 8, verses 1 through 29 will be our text for this evening. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock stock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. 
Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua commanded And they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, This is a chapter that, of course, marks the second encounter that Israel has had with Ai. The first encounter we read was a rather disastrous encounter. Uh, They had won up and they were not going with the Lord's blessing because there was wickedness in the camp. They were routed. 36 of their number were killed, uh, caused them to question what God was doing, whether his promises to them had failed. Um, It was in every way a a, a disastrous story. Um, And but for the intervention of the Lord, the disaster would have remained on the people. Um, And we, we read about how God was teaching us and teaching them that the wages of sin is death. That was a very different kind of encounter than the one we read here. Uh, Just as the first encounter is meant to teach us about the seriousness of sin and the wages of sin and the only way that sin can be put away from before the face of God um, is by a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away sin and points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, So this passage is much more in the vein of telling us what can happen with the favor of the Lord. Um, If the first encounter was the lesson of what happens if you go forward without the Lord, um, this is a lesson in what happens if you go forward with the Lord, with his blessing, with his favor, and shows us what what can be accomplished. Uh, Like how one commentator put it, the object of this chapter is to show what can be done and what was done when God's people act in accordance with his will. Uh, This is a totally different matter. This time as God's people act according to God's will and we see what can be accomplished when God's people do that. 
And so we see this lesson being taught to God's people, uh, being taught here in three ways. First, through comforting words that come to Joshua and the people. Uh, Second, through a cunning plan that the Lord gives him for how to take the city. Um, And finally, we see the consummate justice of God uh, playing out over the city and people of Ai. We want to think about God's justice. Uh, So we want to think about this passage in that way, uh, to think about what can be accomplished in following God's word and how we see that through these comforting words, these cunning plans, and the consummate justice of God. Uh, Right away, we are reminded of the importance of God's word. Uh, God's word, which had been absent from them in the first plan to Ai, is not absent from them now. God comes and speaks to Joshua. He speaks to him right away in this passage and says things that are comforting to him. And this is an important part of this passage because we know that the Lord's fierce anger has been turned away. Uh, that God is no longer angry with the people. We know that because the Bible tells us so. It says that in chapter 7, verse 26. Um, so the Lord, let's see, um, I thought I said that. Oh, seven twenty-six. And they raised up over him a heap of stones, and that remains, and the Lord turned from his burning anger. Uh, we know from the word of God that the Lord turned from his burning anger. Um, we know that, um, but did they know that? And how are they going to know that that has happened? that the Lord is no longer angry with them, that when they go out, the Lord goes with them. Um, Well, the Lord speaks to them, speaks to Joshua a comforting word, a very important comforting word. Uh, What is the first thing that the Lord says to Joshua? Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Um, Now, that's something that all of God's people need to hear from time to time. That's always comforting when God comes to his people and says, don't be afraid. But this has a particular punch for Joshua because this is exactly what God said to him at the beginning of the book. Before they went into the land, this is almost word for word what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 9. um, When he said, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. God is repeating the promise he made to Joshua in chapter 1. And what had God said to Joshua after he had said those things to him in chapter 1? He said, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be frightened. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is a reminder to Joshua when God repeats these words to him that God is still with him. That God is going with him in this endeavor that's going forward. He's not going it alone as they did in chapter 7. God is going with them and for them as they go forward. This is important for Joshua to know. uh, That the Lord is telling him, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Uh, My anger has been turned away and I am with you wherever you go. Uh, God's people need to know that. That the Lord is with them. Uh, The Lord is with them. I love what one commentator said. The absence of fear brings calmness of spirit. Indeed, faith and fear are contraries of one another. Faith in God removes fear of heart. When God says, fear not, there is nothing to fear. Fear not. I go with you. I will go with you wherever you go. That's the message that the Lord brings to Joshua. And that's an important word. That was important for him to hear before they'd gone into the promised land. That's important for them to hear after they've had a failure. After they've fallen into this 
sin, even after they've fallen into the great consequences of their sin. Because what is, what is it hard to believe for us sometimes that God can really forgive, that, that his forgiveness is really full and free, that God is not holding these things against us anymore. One of the fears that we can have is that God is still keeping a record of our sin. That, that he says we're forgiven and we, we trust in his word, but we, we worry that we are going to be forever at odds with him. That it's not really, it can't really be true because we know what we're like. We know how we are to people that sin against us. We know how, how hard it is for us to forgive. And so we put ourselves as if God is like us and say, well, it must be hard for him to forgive. And how can he look at me and not still see that sin? Whether you're Joshua as a leader, whether you're the people of God after Ai, whether you're the average Christian who falls into sin, we worry, is God really so full and free in his forgiveness? Is he really a God who will treat me as if my sins are forgiven? And so this do not be afraid is not just for Joshua, you see, it's for us. To assure us that yes, actually this is the kind of God that we have. Who can forget sin who can forgive sin, who can restore us to a right relationship with him, who has done it because he's offered a propitiation that turns away the wrath of God for our sins. He's offered a sacrifice for our sins that pays the penalty we owe and provides the righteousness we lack. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for his people on the cross so that our sins might be blotted out. And that is the hope of God's people, that we are truly forgiven, that God forgives us and restores us to favor. The good news of Isaiah 43, 25, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This, this reannouncement of that promise, don't be afraid, I am with you wherever you go. It's an assurance that sin has been blotted out. Uh, that God's favor has, is still with the people. He still goes forward with them. They are his people. He is their God. And he is with them. And because he's with them, there's nothing to fear. Because he's with them, victory is assured. God is going to give this city, its people, its king into the hands of of Joshua and his people. And that so those words of comfort not just come to Joshua but they come across in how Joshua explains to the people what will happen. Explaining to them that his plan for battle is God's plan for battle. And so those plans as they are described are different than the kinds of plans we come up with. A Joshua you notice can talk about these plans as if they've already happened. We'll do this, then they will do that, then we'll respond this way, and then we'll win. Um, That's not usually how we plan. If you look at history, that's not usually how military people commit. Military generals and strategy, I'm talking myself into a cul-de-sac, it's a late night. Uh, How generals and tacticians, that's what I was looking for, tacticians uh, plan things. You know, they don't say, well, of course this will work. I remember seeing a documentary on General Eisenhower and their plan for, for the D-Day invasion, the, the great Normandy invasion of World War II. And he had planned it and he had sent it forward. He was the supreme allied commander. He okayed 
the, the invasion to go forward. He was sure it was a good plan. He thought it had a good chance of success. And then on D-Day, after sending the mission forward, he sat down and wrote a letter to President Roosevelt taking full responsibility for the failure of the invasion. Because he thought, if it fails, I'm responsible. Um, that's a general who sent it forward thinking it was a good plan, let it go forward, but knew there was a chance it was not going to work. It was a chance of failure. And he wrote a letter accepting full responsibility of, of, for his failure. Um, he couldn't be sure of his plans. Joshua, Joshua is sure of his plans. That's the comforting word he can give to God's people. This is what's going to happen. He can be sure of his plans because God's plans are not like our plans. God doesn't have to have a plan B or deal with situations as they come. He declares the end from the beginning. Um, He doesn't need a plan B. His plan A always works the way it should work. And so he assures the people, and he also comforts them with a, a reminder of God's generosity in dealing with his people. He tells them you are to go and do exactly what you did to Jericho, to Ai, with one exception. And what is the exception? This time you can keep all the spoil that's in the city. All the plunder, all the spoil, all the livestock, that's for you. You can keep all of that. That's a comforting word to them of God's generosity and grace. Because had they done so well at Jericho that they deserved this, this provision from God? No, Israel had failed. That was the lesson of chapter 7. But even though they failed, what does God come and say to them? He says, you know what? All the spoil, all the plunder, you can have it. All the livestock that's there, you can have it. Um, it's a testimony to God's gracious provision for his people. And that should have given them great hope. Also to be reminded, not only do we have a forgiving God, we have a generously gracious God. He lavishes these gifts freely on an undeserving people. Um, That's the kind of God we serve. It's important for God's people to know that. That we don't serve a closed-fisted God. Um, A God who is a bread and water God, as one person described. He just gives you what you need to survive. No, God is a generous God. He gives us far beyond what we need. And he just lavishes grace on this people. Um, And that tells us what kind of God we have, who gives everything out of his grace and then rewards us on top for the things we don't deserve. It's a wonderful character of our God. That we depend on him entirely to seek him, and yet he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That we depend entirely on him for his grace, and yet from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. That's the kind of God we serve. And in speaking these comforting words to the people, he not only gives them a lesson in God's grace and generosity, he also gives them an important lesson in waiting patiently on the Lord. Um, Achan got what he deserved in chapter 7, but we see here how sad that story is. Because if he just waited, the Lord would have given to him everything that he wanted. 
what he stole at Jericho would have been freely given to him at Ai. Um, It's a lesson in waiting patiently on the Lord. If he'd not have taken, he'd have been given it. He'd have been given all he could carry, not just what he could hide under his tent. And I think there too, there's a lesson about waiting patiently on the Lord. Reminding us that covetousness at its core is an impatience with the Lord. We're just not willing to wait for Him to act. We have to act for ourselves. Um, It's a reminder to us to be patient with God. Um, that God gives them more than he could ask, they could have asked or imagined at AI, even after their sin. Uh, these are comforting words to be reminded that this is the kind of God we have, who provides for us far beyond what we deserve, lavishing his grace upon his people. And it's an encouragement to us to look to him and to wait on his perfect timing, uh, to be patient for the Lord to make us all rich in Christ in his time. Uh, So comforting words that are so important to a people that had stumbled so badly, and then God gives them the plan that they need uh, to successfully take the city the second time. And it's a very cunning plan, right? First, they're going to send a, a, a group of people to sit in ambush behind the city, and then they're going to attack them like they did before, And they're going to make it look like they haven't learned anything from the first time. They're going to attack like they did before. And when AI comes out, they're going to run like they did before. And AI is just going to chase them as they run away. And as they run, then there's going to be a signal that Joshua will hold up his spear. And at that point, the people who are in ambush should jump up and take the city. And then when they've taken the city, they're setting it on fire. That'll be the signal that the city's been taken. And when they see the smoke, they'll know that's the time to turn around and attack, and, and we see that's the plan that God gives them, um, the plan that God has made that is certain. Uh, they don't have to have any fear that God will, pro- will, will do what he's promised to do. The, the outcome is assured before they even start, but as the story is told to us, we see that everything happens just as Joshua said it would happen. They attack, AI rushes out to attack them, they pretend to run away like they did before, AI gets super excited, they're all running away, and everybody chases out of the city to chase after them. And then the people in ambush stand up and say, thank you very much. They go into the city, they take it over, they set the city on fire, and then the fleeing people realize they've taken the city and we can turn around now and attack. Um, And you can imagine what chaos this throws the men of AI into. They think they're winning, they think they're chasing, and all of a sudden somebody notices the city's on fire, and when they turn around to see the city's on fire, when they turn back, all these guys that were running away have now turned around and are attacking them. And then the people who've put the city under ambush are now coming out of the ambush city to attack them, and so you're being attacked from both sides, coming and going. And they find themselves between the whole army of Israel. The plan is completely successful. And what is the turning point for the battle? Um, It's the direction of the Lord when he says to Joshua, hold up your javelin, hold up your spear, um, for I will give it into your hand. Uh, That turns the tide, but it reminds us this is not just a cunning plan that they came up with, uh, sitting down, the tacticians, uh, writing it all out. This is something that they got from the Lord. 
Everything that happens here happens at his direct direction. Because of his sovereign care for his people, these things turn out exactly the way they had planned to turn out. Um, they come out, they strike down all the men of war, and then they are able to take the city, devote it to destruction, um, and then they kill the king as they've been commanded. They do to this city exactly what they did to Jericho. So this tells us in a little more detail what they must have done to Jericho. And again, it confronts us with not the most pleasant of stories in terms of the destruction of Ai. Um, They kill their army. They kill the people in Ai. We're told that's 12,000 people. Uh, They take their king. They execute the king. Then they hang him on a cross. They hang him on a cross until the evening, and then they take down his corpse and throw it into the entrance of the gate. And then they pile stones over it and leave the whole city as a ruin. This is a ruin told much more in detail than the story of Jericho. As bad as the story of Jericho was, we didn't get all these grisly details. Um, You know, after I was finished reading, I was tempted to say, well, you know, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Is this, you know, is, is this, do we need to read these kinds of stories and what do we make of these kinds of stories? But it's a reminder of God's consummate justice. And I think the reason we're given all the detail um, in this passage is to give us that sense of God's justice once again and then to tell us more specifically about something about God's justice that we need to pay attention to. Uh, we've said that one of the struggles people have had with, with the Bible is these kinds of you know, devoted to destruction, this kind of what's called harem warfare, complete destruction, and how do we make sense of that in light of God and His mercy Um, And we've said before, in a general sense, we have to see what happens in the promised land as a picture of final judgment. Um, This is a picture of what will happen in the final judgment. All of the enemies of God will be wiped out. And we've said the judgment is terrible, but that's because the crime is terrible. Um, let Let the judgment fit the crime, really, is the message of Joshua. And the judgment is terrible, but that's because the crime God is punishing is terrible. And I think it's told in a little more detail here, as I said, for two particular reasons, two particular things that we're meant to take away uh, from this picture of judgment, this consummate justice that God visits on Ai. And I think the first is to show the folly of those who think they can contend with the Lord. Uh, To show the folly of those who think they can contend with the Lord. Ai is Psalm 2 in miniature. AI is Psalm 2 in miniature where we see in Psalm 2, what do all the nations of the world say? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. AI is, is Psalm 2 in miniature, a kingdom that wants to resist the kingdom of the living God, that has always acted in resistance of the kingdom of the living God and thinks it can contend. Um, thinks it could hold out against the army of the living God with the commander of the Lord's army at its head. Um, and I think this, this is to show the folly of that. The king of Ai was a wicked rebel king leading a wicked rebel people against their God. Um, he was supposed to promote good and punish the wrongdoer. But immorality and wickedness were rampant all over Canaan. 
There's no reason to think it was any different in Ai. I think there's a particular reason why there's a, a justice reserved for the king. He's not simply executed with everyone else. Joshua executes him specially and hangs him on a cross. Now he's hung on the cross dead. He's not hanged up alive as Christ was. He's hung dead as a sign of his accursedness before the Lord. I also don't think it's any coincidence that he's thrown down in the entrance to the gate. Where was the, what was the entrance to the gate? What did it symbolize back then? That was where the judges sat. And I think it's a sign that the king is supposed to be the ultimate enforcer of justice. And if justice is not done, then the king will be thrown down by the Lord. And I think this is a picture of here was a king who did not enforce justice in his kingdom. Who allowed wickedness and immorality to reign in his kingdom. And then he came into contact with the king who is faithful and true. And he threw him down. And he buried him in the entrance where justice ought to have been done that he never did. And it was a reminder that there is a God in heaven who is an enforcer of justice. Who will see that justice is done. Who is a good and faithful king. And he will not tolerate the wickedness of the earth. And he will throw down all kings and kingdoms that stand against him. The rulers of the earth are to be warned. That this is what happens when you try to oppose the living God and his anointed one. This is what it is to contend with the Almighty. I think that's the first thing they were to learn from the justice in this picture. I think the world was to be warned in this, but God's people were to be comforted. They were to be comforted to know that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Part of the reason this severe judgment falls on them is they had killed 36 of God's people. Uh, They had killed his own beloved people in that first warfare. And the Lord hears the cries of the afflicted. It's important for God's people to know that when they call out to God in their affliction, we have a God who hears, a God who answers. Um, Think of the prayer of the afflicted that's raised in Psalm 35, verses 1 through 6 and 9. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Is this not exactly what the Lord did at Ai? Did they not find themselves pursued by the angel of the Lord? Did they not find the Lord contending for his dearly loved people and answering their cries? And God's people need to be reminded of that. That the Lord hears us when we cry. He hears the cry of his afflicted people and he will not forget to see that they get justice. 
Um, that can be one of the things we struggle with when we see the church afflicted in the world. We can say, where is the Lord? Does he not hear his people when they call? When Nigerian Christians are murdered as in church as they worship? We can say, where is the Lord? When Chinese Christians are arrested and imprisoned, we can say, where is the Lord? When Syrian Christians are executed in home videos, we can say, where is the Lord? And what the Lord reminds us of is he hears the cry of his people and he will not forget to give them justice. Heaven sees. Um, and one day, God will raise a signal for the tide to change. Um, there was a time when AI thought this was all going very well, right before it all started going very badly. There was a definite moment, right? Joshua raised that javelin and everything changed. There is a sea change like that coming in this world. It won't be the raising of the javelin, but Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it'll be a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And everything in the world will suddenly change. The people that think they have the church on the run will find the world suddenly changed. The church has to live in the comfort of that confidence. Because the devil and the world pursue the church in this world and see us in relative weakness and see a lack of strength and think we're just going to all chase out against them because we've got them right where we want them. They're just about destroyed. And then a day is going to come where they're going to hear that, that heavenly cacophony and all of a sudden things are going to be completely changed. And they'll be caught between the church on earth which has been raised incorruptible and imperishable and the king of glory returning from heaven with the church in glory raised incorruptible and his holy angels and the white rider and suddenly you're caught between two forces you can't withstand. And everyone who's opposed to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will be utterly destroyed. That's the comfort that God's people can have to know that the order that seems so out of order in this world will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And it will be clear who is with the Lord and who will have the victory and who will be on the losing side. And part of the reason for this is to give comfort to those who know the Lord and to give that urgent call to those who are not part of His kingdom. Um, to those who currently see so much in the world and so little in the church. To be reminded there is a day coming when it will be revealed where you want to be. And the urgent call that goes out is don't wait until it's too late. Um, the urgent call is if you know yourself not to be walking with the Lord, not to be part of the church. You may think for a time everything is fine, but there's a moment coming when everything will change. And it will be revealed where you stand on that day. And it will be an awful place to be, caught between the armies of the living God, with nowhere to hide, where people will hit the dirt and, and pray that the ground would just open up and swallow them, or that the mountains would fall on them to protect them from what's coming. And the whole purpose of the gospel going out is so that you would not be consumed in that day. 
so that you hear about that judgment that's coming now so that you would not fall into it. That is the gracious character of our God, to warn us beforehand what's coming and to plead with us to flee from the wrath of God. And calling us, if, we want, if we're afraid of the judgment that's coming, if we hear this and we fear this as we ought, to recognize that there's refuge to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in his cross he was judged in our place. And that all those who seek him by true faith can find refuge in him. There's a horrible future coming for those who will not acknowledge the king of glory. But there's a blessedness for all who sought refuge in him. No one who seeks refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith will fail to find it. He will protect you on that day. Uh, But he will in no wise clear the guilty if you seek to face him apart from his son and faith in him. And so the, the Lord comes and pleads to us and says, today is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there will be nothing to fear when that king comes. Um, That's the calling of Psalm 2. We'll end with what it says in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May we all find that refuge by faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is a truly frightening thing to think of facing your justice without a mediator. And we thank you for this difficult picture of justice in the scriptures that reminds us of what that day of final judgment might be like. We know that there are many in the world who think they have the church on the run, but we know the future is is bright for the people of God that the Lord Jesus is coming in glory to deliver us from our enemies and his and to save us from them. So much so that the devil will even be crushed underneath our feet in that day. And so Lord, we pray that you would sustain us with the hope of that great day of reckoning and transformation when our cause will be revealed as the cause of the Son of God. We'll be revealed that those who put our faith and trust in him have not trusted in him in vain. And our hearts go out to those who do not know him and will not turn to him. And we earnestly pray, Lord, that you would send forth your spirit in this world in great measure, that people might kiss the Son, that they might serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling, that they might not meet him in his judgment on that great and terrible day, but might find refuge in him through faith in him and find blessedness. Oh, we pray that all here would know that that faith and that blessedness in Jesus Christ. Help us to that by your spirit, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.